Today's scripture reading is from Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boats to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats, so they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, family of God. This story from Luke chapter 5 is about Jesus entering into the lives of sinners and transforming them by calling them into a life of discipleship. Our key word today is the word disciple. Everybody say disciple. Of course, the word disciple doesn't actually appear in this text, but a disciple is a follower of Jesus, a student of Jesus, a learner of Jesus. And at the end of the story, we read in verse 11 When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. In other words, they left their old life to start a new life as followers of Jesus. And this story is a true story, and it's put here in the word of God for us to read because the Holy Spirit wants us to see our own story in this story. There are many occasions in the Gospels in which we read about Jesus calling people to lead their to leave their old way of life and to begin following him. And each one of those is a model revealing to us something about what does it mean for us to be disciples of Jesus? Because a Christian is a disciple of Jesus. A local church is a community of disciples of Jesus who have covenanted to do the will of God together in this time and in this place. And the first thing that I want you to notice about this story as as we're thinking about our own spiritual journey here is what Jesus does not do. Jesus does not cast a compelling vision and then ask people to prayerfully consider joining his team. He's not asking them to evaluate him and make a decision. Rather, Jesus is entering into their lives with sovereign authority and with overwhelming mercy in a way that is really shattering their preconceptions about themselves. 
and bringing them to a place of brokenness and vulnerability. And then he's speaking a word of comfort and grace and purpose and identity that recreates them. This is all about the sovereign authority and initiative of Jesus. And if you're here as a follower of Jesus today, you know, did you start this thing or did Jesus start it? Good answer, Jared, from the back. Everybody say Jesus started it. He took the initiative with us. And to be a disciple of Jesus is to be a person who responds to this overwhelming presence of Jesus with a life of faith and obedience. So my prayer is that the Holy Spirit's going to do a work in us today, teaching us again and again what does it mean to say yes to the call of discipleship that Jesus places on our life, because that call is not just a one-time thing, it's an everyday thing. Today, whatever is going on in your life, wherever you came from this morning, Jesus is presenting himself to you in the word again and saying, follow me. So I want to invite you to bow your head one more time. And where you are, would you just pray for yourself and for all that are in this space, that the Holy Spirit would help us to hear the call of Jesus once again and to respond with faith and obedience. Our Father in heaven, we have already read your word and sung your praises, and now as we Give some focused attention to meditating on the scriptures. I ask for the help of your Holy Spirit. Open our eyes to see Jesus. Open our ears to hear your word. Lord, most of us are people who have a lot going on in our lives and are are easily distracted. So I pray that your Holy Spirit would give us focused attention to the scriptures today. Please give us hearts that are humble and receptive and soft before you. I pray that the presence and the power and the sovereign grace of Jesus would do a new work in us today. Ask that you'd forgive us of our sins and cleanse us and empower us by your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we're thinking about our journey of discipleship, I just want to walk with the story, walk through the story with you. Verse 1 says that at one occasion, Jesus was out preaching. And the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear the word of God. As I read this text repeatedly this week, I was just struck by that phrase. The crowd was pressing in to hear the word of God. And it just made me think about the fact that all day, every day, we always need God's word. Have you found that to be true, church? Our souls need to eat the word of God more than our bodies need to eat food. If you go a few days or even a week or two without eating food, you'll probably survive. You'll probably be okay. But to go a few days or a few weeks without the word of God is dangerous. There's a reality that we always need God's word. But one of the symptoms of sin in our lives is that we're often not fully aware of our need for God's word. If we go a day or two without eating food, our bodies will remind us. We won't be able to forget. But sometimes... The longer we spend away from God's word, the more spiritually complacent and blind we can come. But it's interesting now that Jesus has launched his public ministry. The presence of Jesus is having the effect on people that the more Jesus is coming near, the more they are aware of the reality that they need God's word. So the crowds are 
pressing in. Some of them because they're hungry to know God. Some of them are perhaps just curious what this miracle worker has to say. But they're pressing in to hear the word of the Lord. And it's one of my prayers for us today that as Jesus comes near to us, he will reawaken our hunger for his word. You want that, church? But the fact that there's so many people pressing into here has created a certain logistical problem. There's a lot of people and there's no microphones, there's no stages, there's no speakers. And so it's hard to hear. And that little logistical problem leads to the events that, that we read about in this story. Jesus asks Simon Peter, can I come sit in your boat to teach? Now, this particular body of water um, is in a place where the shore that surrounds it is quite sloped. And it's still the case today that if you go to this part of the world, if you get on the sea in a boat, because the shore is so sloped, it creates kind of a natural amphitheater. So that one person who's speaking out loud can be heard by a large group of people. So that, that's what happens here. Simon Peter steps in to serve in a practical way and says, yes, Jesus, you can come sit in my boat. This is not the first time we met Simon Peter. If you were here last week, we met him. Simon Peter already has a relationship with Jesus. He already knows Jesus. Last week, we read that after preaching a Sabbath sermon, Jesus came over to the home of Simon Peter to enjoy a Sabbath meal. Jesus healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law. So Simon has heard Jesus teach. He's seen his power. He's seen him perform miracles. They have a relationship. And Simon Peter, being a very practical man and a man of action, steps in to serve in a very simple way. His ministry today is much like the ministry of the guys in the back. I can only see the top of their heads. Who's back there? Zach? Devin? Infinity? Okay. Let's give it up for the sound guys in the back. Thank you guys for serving. Simon Peter had your job, but it was a low-tech version, okay? He just said, come sit in the boat so everybody could hear. But after Jesus is done speaking, Jesus begins to press in to Simon Peter's life in a new way. As we've said, Simon Peter already knows Jesus. He's already heard him speak. He's seen him heal sick people. He's watched him cast out demons. But there's something different today. Let's, let's read it again in verses 4 through 7. It says, And when he had finished speaking, he, that is Jesus, said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. Simon already knows that Jesus has power from God. But there's something different today. And I think the difference is this. Jesus is coming close to Simon in Simon's own space. Fishing is what Simon does. Fishing is Simon's day to day life. Fishing is Simon's vocation. Simon knows fishing. And he has heard Jesus teach with authority. He has seen Jesus heal people. But now he's seeing Jesus is the Lord of lakes and fish. He's the Lord over all creation, including the little part of the world where I do my day to day living. 
that has a significant effect on Simon. You can hear his skepticism at the beginning of, of this encounter. Simon has spent the whole night trying to catch fish. And he hasn't caught anything. In this part of the world, the fish come close to the surface where you can catch them in nets late at night. Simon knows this because his whole life he has been a fisherman. His ability to feed his family and clothe his family comes from understanding how fishing works. He knows how this works. So when Jesus says, now it's daytime, go, go out one more time to that spot right there and put down your nets. Simon's initial response is skepticism. You hear it in verse 5? Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. Master, we toiled all night. I know you're very good at teaching the Bible, but fishing is kind of like my thing. I understand how fishing works. They come out at night. They come close to the surface at night. They don't come out in the day. I'm tired. I already let you use my boat. Stayed here for a long time. Listen to you preach. You preach even longer than John Mark. And I've stayed up all night. And uh, I want to go home. He's skeptical. And right here, maybe Simon Peter is a little bit of a role model. We could have a confession moment if you want to. You ever have the experience that God speaks to you through his word and you like believe in Jesus, but actually your initial instinctive response is skepticism and doubt? Okay, thank you for being one honest person in the room, Angel. Anybody else? Okay, if if you struggle with the skeptical response, I love this here. Simon's responds initially with skepticism. That is not good. I'm not glorifying his skepticism. But then he says, but at your word, I will let down the nets. Here's a little role model for you. If you're a Christian and you're reading God's word and you're struggling with skeptical decisions, just go ahead and obey and see what Jesus will do. Just go ahead and obey. So Jesus gives the word. Simon is feeling skeptical, but he chooses the obedience of faith. He puts down his nets. And, of course, the response is overwhelming. Simon immediately knows this is not normal. This has never happened before. This is supernatural. The same person I've seen heal the sick and cast out demons. Now I've seen his authority come close to me in my place of work, my place of expertise, my day-to-day grind. I want you to pause and imagine what would this look like in your life. If you do landscaping... What, how, what would it look like for Jesus to come close and show you that he's the Lord of grass and bushes? If you're a teacher or you work in construction or you're a homemaker, you know, primary caretaker for children or perhaps for aging parents. If you're in academia, if you're in the medical field, whatever your day to day work is, what would it look like? For Jesus to come close and show you what he's doing for Simon right here. I'm not just the God of church. I'm not just the God of a little slice of life that you call religious or spiritual. I'm the Lord of everything. Including I'm Lord and master in your area of vocation, in your day to day grind. If he did that in some miraculous, supernatural way. How would you feel? What would you think? Simon Peter's response is interesting. This story is a clearly a key turning point in Simon Peter's spiritual development. He already knew Jesus. He already liked Jesus. He already listened to Jesus. He may have possibly even identified at some level as a disciple of Jesus before this encounter. And yet look what happens in verse 8. 
says, but when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. When we come to experience the reality of God's holiness, of God's sovereign power, coming near to us in a new way, it inevitably has an effect of helping us to see ourselves in a new way. If you come into the presence in a new way of the Holy One, or we say it like this, if Jesus makes his presence manifest to you in a new way, it will change the way that you see yourself. And here we see that Simon Peter immediately has an increased awareness of his own sin, his own spiritual need. The fear of God is awakened in his heart. God is pure goodness. God is pure love. God is pure truth. God is pure light. And when God comes near in and through the person of Jesus, God's light exposes the reality of who we are. Which is to say, not pure goodness. The reality of who we are as sinners is made clear. Perhaps you've had an experience like this. You've done something that makes you to be really dirty. You went to... Football practice, or you worked out in the garden, or you went camping. Some of our college students went camping this weekend. Was that as miserable as I imagined that it would be? Y'all have fun? Okay, good. But you go camping, you come back, you smell like smoke, you got soot all over you, you're dirty. But like when you're camping with all the other camping people, you don't realize how dirty you are, right? Or when you're at football practice and everybody smells like that, it's different than if somebody else walks into the locker room, right? But then you come indoors and you flip on the light and you look in the mirror. Your condition has not changed, but the experience of being in a new environment and seeing your face reflected back to you in that artificial light makes you aware of your condition in a new way. Right. And you become immediately aware that you need a shower. In Scripture, we see this pattern. I'll show you a couple places in a moment. But we see this pattern when God comes near and reveals his presence, makes his presence felt and seen in a new way, such that we perceive something of the holiness and the awesome power of God. It's like going inside and flipping on the light and looking in that mirror. And we become aware that though we often tend to rationalize our sinfulness, And we often tend to justify ourselves before our friends or our bosses or our parents or whoever we want to please. And we especially try to convince ourselves that we are really great. All of our excuses just seem really lame once we've stood in the presence of God. And all of our rationalization and all of our praise of self, it just falls flat. And we become aware That we are desperately needy. We need grace. If I am self-righteous. If I'm going around. Criticizing everybody else. For not living up to my standards. This is an indication. 
that I need to enter into the presence of a holy God and consider who he is. Because once we've encountered God, self-righteousness just dies. And what's left is poverty of spirit. Remember what Jesus said at the beginning of the Beatitudes? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. People who have been broken by the shattering vision of God's holiness are not self-satisfied, independent, self-sufficient people with critical spirits towards others. People who have been broken by the shattering vision of God's holiness are people who are desperate for grace. Simon Peter says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. He's recognized that he doesn't deserve to be in the presence of this holy man named Jesus, whose sovereign power he's just experienced in a new way. And I love how Jesus responds. Verse 9 tells us the other disciples are also astonished. But then Luke draws our attention back to this encounter between Jesus and Peter. And look what it says. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. I want us to think about those words. Everybody say, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, says Jesus. From now on, you will be catching men. Do not be afraid. Fear not, Simon. That statement is pure grace. It does not mean, Simon, your sins are not a big deal. You're a pretty good guy. Jesus knows better than Simon that Simon's sins actually are a big deal. My sins are a big deal. Your sins are a big deal. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. Sin is a big deal. So when he says, do not be afraid, he does not mean your sins are not a big deal. And he definitely does not mean that he's not the holy one. Jesus is going to give Simon one after another revelation that he is more sovereign and more holy than Simon has begun yet to understand. So when Jesus says, fear not, do not be afraid, what that means is your sins are forgiven. What that means is I'm going to cleanse you. I'm going to accept you and draw you near to myself and forgive you. That's the word that we need to hear. Has anybody found that when we try to convince ourselves that everything is going to be okay by trying to convince ourselves that we're not that bad, it doesn't work? We will never find real peace by trying to deny the truth of our brokenness. What we need is not to lie to ourselves and to hide from the reality of our brokenness. What we need is someone with the authority to say you're forgiven to come and say you're forgiven. And that's what Jesus is doing right here. And as we read through Luke's gospel, he's going to say this explicitly to people. Your sins are forgiven and people are going to get mad at him and accuse him of blasphemy because only God has the authority to forgive sins. But Jesus is God coming near to us with holy authority and with mercy and with grace. When Jesus says, do not be afraid, really, his cross comes into view. How can it be? That the holy king who has come to overthrow the forces of evil and set everything right. Can say, do not be afraid to someone as sinful as Simon Peter. Here's how it can be. The holy judge is also the holy savior. And he has come to take my sin and your sin and Simon Peter's sin on his 
own body to bear the weight on the cross. He has come to bear in his own flesh all of our evil and all of its consequences. So that we don't have to bear it. And through the death and resurrection of Jesus, discipleship becomes possible. Because the death and resurrection of Jesus gives us the grace to be forgiven and to become friends of God. Don't be afraid. Peter can live fearlessly from this point forward in the presence of the Holy One. Because the Holy One has come to bear his own sin. And Jesus says to all of his disciples... Don't be afraid. Everybody turn to your neighbor and say, fear not. If you're a follower of Jesus, your friend loves you enough to give his life for you. And he's powerful enough to defeat sin, Satan and death, not to mention to uphold the universe by the word of his power. If you know Jesus, you don't have to fear anything. You don't have to fear anything. And then he says, from now on, you will be catching people. This is a statement about purpose. It's a statement about identity. It's a statement about calling and vocation. To be a disciple of Jesus is first and foremost to be a person who listens to Jesus, who trusts Jesus, who follows Jesus, who listens to his word. But an essential aspect of that is to participate with Jesus in his redemptive work because Jesus is calling more and more people to himself, to make disciples. In short, to be a disciple of Jesus is to be a disciple maker. To be a disciple of Jesus is to make ourselves available for Christ calling the world to himself through us. And that's not just something for a few professional Christians or pastors or missionaries. That's God's calling on all of us. He says, Simon Peter, I have a greater purpose for your life than you know. And Ephesians 2.10 tells us that's true of every Christian. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, it says you are his workmanship. You are his masterpiece. He created you and designed you customly to walk in good works, which he has prepared beforehand for you. God wants to use you to be a channel of his healing, grace and mercy and love in the world as you proclaim the gospel of Jesus. And as you make disciples and as you love people and as you're zealous for good works of mercy and justice. So Simon Peter is going to walk away from this, not only with a greater knowledge of the holiness and the authority of Jesus and of his own sin, but he's going to walk away with the knowledge of his own forgiveness and with a renewed sense of purpose for his life. And I'm praying that the Holy Spirit's going to do a work in our church today to just awaken in us again the excitement of what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus. To be a Christian and to be a community of disciples is to be a people who were called by holy, sovereign grace as And God himself has said to us, I'm going to use you to bring healing to the whole world. Isn't that awesome, church family? Now, I want to pause before we wrap up today to help you see that what's happening in this story fits a biblical pattern that we need to take seriously. I had a lot of examples in my notes, and then I took most of them out because we don't have time for all that. But I'm just going to give you two, okay? Isaiah, if you go read the first chapters, first five chapters of Isaiah, you're going to hear Isaiah prophesying a lot. Thus says the Lord, he's speaking to people and he's telling people about God's grace, but he's also speaking with authority about God's judgment. In fact, he frequently says, woe to you, woe to you because of your sin. But then something changes in chapter six. If you've got a Bible, you can flip over Isaiah chapter six, this famous moment. 
I'll start reading in verse one. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon his throne. So this is a moment in which Isaiah is walking through a situation similar to what Simon Peter has experienced. Simon already knew Jesus, but now he's getting a deeper experience of the authority of Jesus. Isaiah was already a prophet of God, but now he's getting a vision of God enthroned, reigning as king over creation. The text continues high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings with two. He covered his face and with two. He covered his feet and with two. He flew and one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me. Did you notice what happened? For five chapters, Isaiah has been proclaiming the word of the Lord boldly saying, woe is you. And now he says, woe is me. He has seen a vision of the holiness of God. And that has had. That has brought a shattering awareness of himself. It's brought new self-knowledge. He says, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. But look at what happens next. Verse six. Then one of the seraphim flew to him, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. He touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sins are atoned for. After Isaiah falls down in the the fear of the Lord and confesses his sin and imagines himself undone, God sends a messenger of grace. And right after this, the Lord says, whom shall I send and who will go for me? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. Not only did he experience God's holiness, confess sin, but he received grace and forgiveness and a new mission from God. One more example. John in the book of Revelation. If you got your Bible, you can look to Revelation chapter one. I'm going to read you verse 12. Starting in verse 12, it says this. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. And here he describes his vision of the exalted Lord Jesus. After Jesus has died on the cross for our sins and risen again, he's reigning. In heaven, John sees it. And here's what he sees. One like the son of man clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. He gets a vision of the exalted Jesus. He already believed in Jesus. He was already a follower of Jesus. And now he sees more clearly who it is that he's been worshiping. And listen to what happens next. Verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. His ego has been shattered. His self-deceived, self-sufficiency. Maybe he thought it was already gone, but now he's seen Jesus face to face. He falls down in brokenness and poverty of spirit. And then listen to what happens. 
But he, Jesus, laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. Everybody say, fear not. Are you noticing a pattern, church family? Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I die and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. And then he says, write these things that you have seen. He forgives him. He tells him, don't be afraid. And he gives him a mission, a vocation, a purpose. He's going to be an agent of Jesus' kingdom through his writing. Now, time tells us to talk about this same pattern in the life of Moses, in the life of Job, in the life of Ezekiel, in the life of Daniel, in the life of the Apostle Paul. I mean, really, like I often tell you, if you want to take me to coffee, there's a five-hour version of this sermon, okay? And we can dig into it this week. But hopefully... The story from Luke 5 and these two examples I've given you are enough for you to see a pattern. Here's the pattern. A person begins to walk with God. They start out on a journey of discipleship. And then, in his own free and sovereign and gracious way, Jesus comes nearer. God comes closer in love and in holy power. And this closer encounter with the God of holy love is experienced as a shattering revelation of our own sinfulness, of our own weakness, our own finitude. The person who experiences this shattering humbles herself or himself in reverent worship, in fear of the Lord, in the confession of sin. And then God responds with pure grace as you're forgiven, you're cleansed, fear not. Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose again. The person is not only forgiven and cleansed, but they're called by God into a deeper experience of relationship with God. Church, do you want that deeper experience? And this deeper experience of relationship with God includes less self-centeredness, less fixation on how my story is awesome and how God is going to help me with my plan. More centeredness in God's kingdom, God's name being exalted among all nations, God bringing healing and hope to the neighborhood. And and the person stands up with a sense of calling now, God, here am I, send me. Here am I, send me. I've got a purpose from you which is deeper and greater and better than anything I could have imagined for myself. In my experience, this isn't something that just happens once or twice. It's a repeated experience throughout the journey of discipleship. Which means if you're here today and you've never trusted in Jesus today, this could be your first time. Right now, you're hearing what we're saying to you is Jesus of Nazareth is a real historical person. He's also the creator of the universe who became flesh to save you. He died on the cross for your sins and rose again. And if you'll today say, I'm a sinner, but I trusted Jesus Christ, that'll be for you forgiveness and the cleansing and the beginning of a new relationship with God. Don't leave here before you do that. But also, if you've had that experience and been trying to walk with Jesus for a year or five years or 10 years and 20 years, and you came here and you feel like you're at the end of your rope, or maybe you came here feeling great and self-satisfied, Jesus is still here again presenting himself to you and saying, I'm holier and mightier and closer than you have yet perceived. I'm here. 
And you're not self-sufficient. You're not holy in yourself, but I love you. And I died for you and rose again. And if you'll respond to my voice, you don't ever have to be afraid again. And I have a purpose. I have a purpose for you. Let's wrap up by looking at the last verse again. Verse 11. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. First, just observe that the word they is plural. They. Luke has focused our attention on Simon Peter, thus emphasizing the deeply personal nature of Christian discipleship. But now he reminds us that discipleship is also an essentially communal activity. We, we are called to follow Jesus together. And together now, this group of fishermen is entering into a deeper level of commitment than before. They already knew Jesus. They already liked Jesus. They were already happy to make their boat available to help with his ministry. They may have even identified at some level as his disciples before. But notice they left everything and followed him right after the most successful hour of their career. Earlier, I asked you to imagine what would it look like if Jesus came close with sovereign authority into your place of work. You just got promoted way beyond the one you've been working for. Your CEO. He, he just flexed his authority to where the things that you've been longing for, or we could put it the other way, the things that make you super anxious and keep you up at night because it's your area of responsibility, they all just got resolved. You just had your most wildly successful day. You, you succeeded and got promoted beyond your wildest dreams because Jesus came near. And then he says, now walk away from all of it. That was just to give you a glimpse of who I am. I mean, you can think about this in ministry. I just thought my little spiritual exercise this week is what if God answered all of the prayers we've prayed for our church times a thousand all at once. And they're just total revival breakout and like a million people got saved. That would be like the whole OKC Metro or two thirds of it. And, and then we uh, sent out a million missionaries and the training, just to, everything just took off. And God was moving beyond our wildest imagination. And then Jesus said, walk away from it. And I had to wrestle with it in my heart. But I was just thinking, yeah, I'd rather be with Jesus than bask in all of that. That's the question he's confronting us with. These guys just had the most successful day of their career by a lot. And then they just walk it away. They leave the fish. Now, at this point, I don't know. Simon Minor got his cousin to go sell the fish at the market or something. Didn't specify. But they walk away to follow him. And they do it as a community. Jesus is going to work through this community to continually refine and sharpen one another. Sometimes they're going to shatter each other. And then he's going to heal them and reconstruct them. For them, as for us, Jesus is going to continually take them on a journey in which he shows them himself more clearly, thus showing them themselves more clearly. They are shattered and healed. They're deconstructed and reconstructed. And throughout the process, Jesus is Lord. His word is supreme and his loving purpose is accomplished. And now, church family, I just want you to think about your own life. Today, Jesus is coming closer to us in his word and the community of saints like he always does. He's presenting himself to you in a new way and thus showing you yourself in a new way. His presence is often uncomfortable And yet it's a healing presence 
And even when it makes us uncomfortable, it's strangely a comforting presence. But he's calling us to respond. He's calling us to faith and obedience. I want to invite you to stand. I'm going to say a prayer for you, but first, I just want to invite you to stand and close your eyes and ask the Holy Spirit to show you what is, in what way is Jesus making himself known to you today? What is he showing you about himself? What is he showing you about yourself? How is he calling you to respond with faith and obedience and renewed discipleship and renewed purpose today? After you take a few moments just to stand silently in the word of God, I'm going to say a prayer for you. And then we're going to respond to the scriptures with one more song of worship. Lord Jesus Christ, we acknowledge you as Son of God, King of kings and Lord of lords, the Savior, the the Lamb of God who died for our sins, and the Lion of the tribe of Judah who defeated sin, Satan, and death for us. We have tasted that you are good, but as this story reminds us, we have just begun to taste how good you are. You're better and more holy and more sovereign than we've imagined. And Lord Jesus, we're crying out, come closer to us than ever before. Show us the truth about yourself. Show us the truth about ourselves, even when that's uncomfortable. Speak words of grace and healing and courage to us, Lord. Help us to surrender from our lame, self-constructed identity and purpose in order to enjoy the freedom of the purpose and the identity that you give us as a gift of grace. Help us to believe the gospel. Free us and send us to be your instruments that you're going to use in our community and among all the nations of the earth. In Christ's name we pray.